Take out your swords, grab your Bibles, take out that precious bread of life, the the Word of God, that place where we can turn for our very present help in time of need or trouble, the Scripture reminds us. As we think on this incredible journey that is the book of Acts, We're about to transition from the very beginning, the day of Pentecost, these first two sermons, and now we'll get to the third of these messages that Peter delivers in a rather rapid-fire fashion. And as he does that, he's going to step from having kind of an audience that is very receptive to an audience that is not receptive at all. To one that's going to begin to persecute him. And I want to remind you as you think on the church, the church throughout its history from the very beginning, as the apostles kind of found the church, as Peter preaches really the first evangelical messages, if you will, with the power of the Holy Spirit uh, now in him and on him and fully flowing out of him. All the advantages that we have in in this place, you know, as we have gone throughout the day and, you know, all these thousands of people come and go and, you know, as I was leaving after third service, I'm watching and I'm looking in the coffee shop and there were people in the bookstore and there were people outside and people in the hallways and people sitting in front of TV monitors and they're talking to each other and they have their smartphones out and they're just gabbing back and forth. We have a lot of advantage in that sense over the early church. The early church had none of what we have. They didn't have buildings. They didn't have sound systems. Pastors didn't take salaries. They weren't professional ministers in in that sense. These guys had no credentials. They had no schooling. There was not a thing about them that would make you go, wow, you know, I really just see that guy right there and just there's potential there in that man in the early church no one would have looked and said that there's potential in in this group of people or in you know the these people as they're gathered together as a church you would have looked at them and you would have gone man this is just hopeless there is no way that this movement is going anywhere and so if there's a movement it's starting with these guys you can kind of forget about it Most of the ministers that we'll find in the early church, very short order, are going to have jail records. <laughs> they're they're going to be, you know, we'd be hard-pressed to even find churches that would even accept the apostles. They would have shown up and go, you know, could you kind of go home and maybe take a shower? We, we might not have even let the disciples, the original apostles, into the church because they wouldn't have been you know, kind of, you know, maybe you need to go clean up just a little bit before you walk in, because you know the carpet and all. We wouldn't have let them probably join us, much less lead us. And yet, this incredible story as it begins to unfold of the power of the acts of the apostles, the things that God does through their lives, lit on fire by the Spirit. And it begins now as we see power in the name of the Lord Jesus. We see power in persecution. As I was teaching this morning's services, and I was sitting there thinking about it, as I was sharing, I know that those things that I said, because they're from the Lord, are going to put some of you in harm's way. Without question you're going to have some controversy in your life. The moment you stand on the Word of God, the moment you say you actually believe in the power of prayer and you legitimately believe in seeking the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the the moment you say, that, well, there's a power source that I have that comes from God himself, the third person of the Trinity, people are going to begin to mock and ridicule. There's going to be persecution that's going to come your way. And the moment you say, well, I really trust that God can intervene in the affairs of man, you're going to put yourself in harm's way with at least part of the world. 
and a pretty good chunk of the world. How would you handle that persecution when it comes? You see, just as we find in the book of James, our faith, that which is the practical application of what we believe in our minds, remember that's what faith is. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things yet not seen. So the evidential part of your faith is actually doing something with it, right? You you can't really say that you have faith and it be a secret faith. Because that's akin to saying you don't actually believe it because you don't want to tell anybody about it. You don't want anybody to see it. And so when we talk about faith, faith is perfected when it's tested, amen? So if you truly believe something, and that's something that you can't see, and it's someone that you've never actually physically met, and you say you believe in that person, that person is the son of God. And he came to this earth, and he died for your sins, so that you could be made right with God, so you'd be forgiven of your sins, and placed in God's incredible kingdom. When you tell people you actually believe that, you're going to get persecuted. And it happened in the early church. And so as we dig in tonight, we'll pick up in verse 5 here in chapter 4, and we'll probably get to verse 31, uh, I believe, probably not to verse 37 tonight, but verse 31. And so would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. Thank you that the secret to the success of the church uh, is not found in a program not found in a building it's not found in a powerful person it's found in the power of the holy spirit the church believing and receiving and then carrying out great faith in a world that is against us and so lord we pray for that same power that as we suffer those persecutions ourselves as we have those conversations which people will be tempted to question our faith. God, would we simply grow stronger as you prove yourself absolutely worthy of that faith. We bless your name. We thank you for tonight. Pray that you'd speak to us through the power of your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we really find the secret of the success of the disciples in the early church, of the apostles in the early church, the church itself, was that they were actually tested. They went through trials. They went through troubles. They went through tribulation. They went through difficult times. And in those difficult times, the Lord was faithful. How many of you in here tonight have gone through a difficult time and found that the Lord is faithful? I have. Yeah. Look around the room. That's pretty much all of us. You've gone through those difficult times, and as you've trusted in God, you've watched him do exactly what he said he would do. Now, he may have not done it the way you expected. But the Lord was faithful, and your faith was borne out as you went through those things. When persecution comes, you you really have two options. You can either grow, or you can go. You can either stay steadfast and immovable, or you can be moved. You can either hang tough and watch God work, or you can... Run and try and get away from the situation. And as you stay and you hang tough and you watch the Lord work, your strength is bolstered. There are things that Connie and I can tell you now in our time in ministry that we could not have told you 30 years ago. Because we had not experienced them then. We had not seen the Lord be faithful in in those details where you're just going, God, I don't know how you're going to do this. I have no idea how you're going to accomplish this. But then as you watch his faithfulness, you're energized for the battle. Charles Spurgeon was asked the secret of the power of his ministry. And he gave the weirdest answer that you could ever give to a group of hungry, fledgling theologians in his pastor's school. He said, my people pray for me. He didn't say, well, you know, the secret of my ministry is I stay up for 
14 hours a day studying and I've read all these books and I went and consulted with these globally famous pastors and you know I model myself after this or you know the Metropolitan Tabernacle where I preach you know it's a state-of-the-art facility he said the secret to the power of his ministry was that people prayed for him that he was utterly dependent upon God and unless the people prayed there wasn't much going to happen that's the power uh, of resting in God and, and waiting for him to do what it is that he wants to do. The great St. Augustine writing in you know, 400 or so uh, A.D. is credited largely with what we uh, know as the beginnings of biblical Christianity. His theology kind of reached across and uh, to our day and he, he said this he said you're to pray as though everything depends on God and then work as though everything depends on you that's a person who's willing to get in the fight because we have to pray we also have to work we have to get dirty we have to get in and get going and so that prayer as we're waiting on God energizes us for the the service that God wants to to do with our lives, the battle that's going to lie ahead. And so pick up here in verse 5 with me now in Acts chapter 4, and it says, and it came to pass on the next day. And so you can see, as we talked last time, they met every day, people got saved every day, there was ministry going on every day. Church was an everyday occurrence. Church was a life. They lived life together. Church wasn't something he did on Sunday. It wasn't something he did simply on Thursday nights. It was not something to where they they came once a month. Church became life. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, the elders, the scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, he's speaking of those who are in direct opposition to the things that God is doing. Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest. During that day and time, Caiaphas, Annas, Annas, that family, basically owned the the priesthood. And ultimately, five members of that single family would occupy the office of the high priest before it was all said and done. There there was a deep-seated nepotism within that particular family. And all of them... Basically, that were in the family at the time came to see what was going on with this crazy thing that was happening through this itinerant preacher named Peter. And they gathered together at Jerusalem, and when they had set them in the midst, in other words, they basically have arrested Peter and James and John, and they're now in the middle of being interrogated by a group of guys who form actually the Sanhedrin, So this is a religious court designed to try matters based on the law of God. And so as they're gathered together and they're surrounding them, here they are in the middle, they're going to be interrogated. And they ask, by what power or by what name have you done this? And so from last Sunday, we know what's happened. Here's this man who's been at the beautiful gate for his entire life who was previously completely unable to fend for himself. He could not walk. This man has been healed, and so now they're going to try and find out what it is. Can I tell you when God does something good in your life that people in the world are going to try and explain it away exactly like what's going on right here? They're going to say, ah, oh, that wasn't God. That's just wishful thinking, man. You just you, you, you thought about it from that perspective, and so you kind of believe your own nonsense. You are going to be persecuted if you are a person of faith. It will eventually come. It will eventually happen. And now we find Peter's third sermon. He's delivered two already, recorded here in the book of Acts. Here's his third one. We now know that the first time the church grew by 3,000 people, the second time by another two, that was men. So there's likely some place between that number and maybe double that. There could be 10,000 people that are now converted to Christ And because of these messages that Peter has spoken, and now he's standing with a guy who was previously absolutely unable to walk, who can now walk. And he's been walking and leaping and praising God, and that guy's with Peter. And so there is no way for them to deny exactly what's happened. That's clear. 
They'd walk past this guy for years. It was incontrovertible evidence that something had happened, and that something was most likely miraculous. The question is, how did it happen? People are going to look at your life, and they're going to go, you no longer do drugs. Why? You're out of that. Well, okay, it, it, it's nice. And they, they will pat you on the head and go, I'm, I'm glad you found religion. I, I, I'm really happy that God thing's working for you. And they'll speak somewhat condescendingly to you. You say, no, really God stepped into my life and actually did a work. And they're like, yeah, sure. We have medications for what is going on with you. And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, this is the cream of the crop. This is the brightest and the best of all of the the Jewish religious leadership. This is the top guys. This is the high priest and his inner circle. If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, and by what means he has been made well, then let it be known to you all, and to all of the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, he goes at it again. He is unashamed of the gospel message. He's telling them the truth. And while the truth can set you free, the truth can also get you in trouble with a lot of people. People don't like the truth. They'd rather say, well, you know, we have this incredible 67-step program. And, you know, if you just join our church, and we're going to send you to these classes, and after you go through the classes... And you learn these 14 spheres of influence and these 16 principles and you go through all these things and go through our multiple step program. Once you have that happen, then you'll probably always be an addict, but at least you won't be using. They're talking to a guy that was previously crippled that can now walk. And jump up and down and dance and probably even sing. He says, let it be known to you all and all of the people of Israel. And by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man stands here whole before you. And then he quotes from the 118th Psalm. And he's really kind of, he's digging in a little bit. You know, when you have confidence, you can dig in a little bit. When you know that God has spoken, when you have lived that life, when I I say to you, my God is still Jehovah Rapha, he is our God who heals, it's because I've watched God heal my own son. There is a different level of confidence that I have in praying for you because we've been in that crucible. We've watched God do the unexplainable. The doctors say, well, we don't know if he's going to live or not. And God simply heal him and do exactly what we prayed for. I speak with a different level of confidence when I pray for you because of that. Peter is now expressing that very confidence. He's saying, look... I was with the guy. He was completely lame. And oh, by the way, the Jesus that you crucified, we prayed for him in Jesus' name, and because of that, he stands before you whole. Not because there was some miracle water. Not because it's the third Tuesday of the month. Not because there's a a bunch of people who have great medical skill. And again... Not dismissing God using doctors. God uses doctors all the time. Had nurses and laboratory technicians and phlebotomists and anybody else that you can name in the medical field. God uses those people. But God still does miracles. 
And so now he's going to speak directly to them. And he quotes from the 118th Psalm. And he says, this is the stone. You see, the Jewish people had been, since Daniel's time, referring to Messiah as the stone. The stone over which men would stumble. This stone was rejected by you, the builders. So Peter puts it into a Jewish perspective where he says, look, you're supposed to be building the kingdom. The gospel came to the Jew first. You're supposed to be the builders. You should know who this stone is. And he has actually become the chief cornerstone. Not just a stone, not just one of many. This is the Elijah who is to come. By that name, this man stands before you whole. And so you can almost see Annas and Caiaphas, and they're all just kind of, you know, tugging at their beards. And, you know, it's like, ah, what is going on here? And so they start an official meeting. We'll know that when we get to verse 15 here. But but they're, they're going to bring these men up on charges. And so we're going to see three groups of people here tonight. As you look at these three groups, the first one here are the apostles. And they're just going to simply defend the name of Jesus. The members of the Sanhedrin, the high priest, they basically ask a legal question. Their question was, we want to avoid a miracle, so we're going to ask you, in whose authority do you speak? Because it surely wasn't in ours. You didn't come to me as the high priest and get my permission to heal this guy. And remember, they had actually spoken to Jesus before, and they'd said, did you cast this demon out by Beelzebub? They'd accused Jesus, in essence, of of using demonic forces to do his work. And so now they're coming back to that basic line of questioning. Peter's being persecuted. You see, it would have been easier for Peter to say, well, you know, we went down to the brook Kidron, and if you grab some olives off of the olives in the Garden of Gethsemane, and you squeeze them just right, and you put them in some water, and you dunk it on their head, and then they drink the rest of it, then it has miraculous powers. In other words, Peter could have said, well, you know, it was just some medical intervention. But he says, no. He actually creates a problem for himself by saying that pretty much the only thing that he could say that was going to really get him into trouble. If he'd have said, well, we don't really know. We're not really sure. We were just kind of hanging out. And, you know, it was kind of a prayer meeting, and this dude came in, and, you know, we just kind of prayed for him. But he goes all the way to saying, Jesus, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, By his name alone, this man stands before you whole. That is a very specific thing that's being said to these people. And it's going to make them really upset. He made it clear to the members of this council that they, they in essence, were worthless builders. They'd actually missed the chief cornerstone. You see, the inference that they're making is when you laid out a building, very specifically any large building, the first thing that you laid was the cornerstone. And from the cornerstone, the dictates of the entire building were made. Where it would be, how tall it would be, how long it would be, the direction it would face, all of that was determined by the cornerstone. And so Jesus says, look, this Jesus that you crucified, he's the foundational building block of the church. The one that you killed there was no question what they were getting out. And so you can imagine, they're tearing their garments. They had stumbled over the rock that was Jesus. Now that picture, they're from Deuteronomy 32, 2 Samuel, uh, the, the 22nd Psalm, they, it just has this picture of what Messiah would do and how Messiah would, would move in this world. And it was by that name, that one name, that peace came to this man physically and mentally and emotionally. He he received that shalom from God. That which is undeniably the peace of God. Jesus, the great physician, touched this man. 
That was a problem for the opposition. Pick up verse 12 now. Notice this. Now, if you want to know the strongest statement in the entire Bible about the necessity of Christ for salvation, this is it. Verse 12, Acts chapter 4. Maybe you can slide on John 14, 6. For I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Words of Jesus. Verse 12 here, Acts 4. Speaking of the name of Jesus, it is the name of Jesus that's healed this man. He's the chief cornerstone. He alone is able. And so here's what's said about that Jesus. Nor is there salvation in any other For there is no other name under heaven given among men. In other words, names that men can utter. There is no other name by which, and notice what it says, correctly rendered into the English language, by which we must be saved. Peter makes the most dogmatic, in-your-face, confrontational, intolerant, completely narrow statement that anyone could ever make about what has just happened. Because he uses salvation as the backdrop for it. He's not just talking about this man being healed. And by the way, the term healed and the term salvation here are almost the exact same Greek word. So he's equating the healing of this man who was formerly lame to the healing that happens to us when we receive Christ. And he's saying the only way that that can happen is the name of Jesus. There's not another path. And that is where we rub most of the rest of the world wrong as Bible-believing, Christ-honoring Christians. That's the problem. We can all get together and we talk about God in, in a general sense, most people have no problem with that. Even people who don't know the Lord are pretty much okay talking about God. Talk about a higher power or something less defined than, than maybe Yahweh Adonai, the Lord of hosts. You, you can talk to people about a power that exists somewhere in the universe that's outside of space and time, and most people have no problem with that. You can talk about the theory that there might be a creator. And most people actually don't have much problem with that because they realize that our current scientific explanations for how we got here always bump into a dead end because there is no cause for the original component parts of the universe. So if you don't have a God, you don't have a creator, you got a problem. So you can talk about that. But when you break it down and you start talking about being able to know the unknowable, when you break it down to actually having a relationship with that God who may have created the universe as far as they're concerned, and you tell them that there is no other name under heaven that men can utter whereby anyone can have a right relationship with God, you make a vast majority of the world really upset. That's what happens here. They're like, you mean we've been wandering around for 1,500 years? Do you know who we are? Caiaphas, Annas, his son, son son-in-laws. Don't you know who we are? We've believed in the one true God longer than anybody. We are so beloved of God that he actually gave us a traveling tabernacle. We carted that puppy around through the wilderness for 40 years. And God met us personally right there at the mercy seat. And Peter's now saying, there was never any salvation on Yom Kippur. It was a momentary putting away of the sins of the people for another year. Man, he's just, they're like incensed. 
You see, so when you talk to your friends that are kind of, sort of religious, and they believe in a higher power, their higher power is their doorknob, or, you know, their car, or something. You know, people have some pretty crazy ideas about their higher power, you know. Not trying to dismiss those things. They believe it wholeheartedly. But when you say, you know what, your car can't save you, they get really upset. You say, look, unless a man be born again, he'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. And there's no way to do that except the name of Jesus. They've gone in harm's way. Verse 13, and now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, and they marveled. They're like, oh, man. A bunch of Calvary Chapel pastors. And then they realized that they had been with Jesus. We want people to realize we've been with Jesus. We not, may not be the most well-trained, but we want to be the most spirit-filled, the most spirit-led, and the most dependent upon God himself. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they couldn't say anything against it. I love that. God has a way of getting his point across. <laughs> it's like, the dude's healed. So you can argue about how it happened. They were there. They said... It was Jesus. And there he is. Aren't we like that? Isn't that us? There's no explanation for us. You tell people about Jesus. Jesus did you. That's how you got to where you are. That's what happened in your life. That's why the most powerful thing that you really possess in a way of sharing with people is your own personal testimony. Because it's real. People can go back and check on what you used to be. And what was going on in your life. And how God has worked in your life. And there's, when you give credit only to Jesus. Then they have to do exactly what these guys did. Which was just simply stand and marvel. It was the miracle of the message. And I want you to notice something. It's, it's kind of hidden here. You see it wasn't just the miracle. Because Satan can do miracles. Demons can do miracles. It wasn't just the miracles. It was the miracle along with the testimony. It was someone saying, this is what happened, and here's who did it. Make sure that you give God credit for the miracles he does in your life. Bear witness. Testify of what God has done. Don't, don't put it off on, you know, your, well, you know, I was just really strong in my own personal perseverance and will. Give God the glory for what he's done in your life. Tell people about those miracles. Because the miracles themselves are no substitute for what God has done in your life. You need to tell people what God has done in your life. Make sure that they know that there is no other name under heaven whereby you could be the way you are. That Jesus actually did that for you. And so it was at his name. It's not the name of Confucius. And this is where it starts getting dicey for us. You start sharing with you. It's not the name of Buddha. It's not Joseph Smith. It's not Krishna. It's not Vishnu. It's not Allah. It's only Jesus. It's only Jesus. There is no other name. There's not one that has that power. There's no competing other name. Now we can see the opposition. Verse 15. But when they had commanded them to go aside and out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What are we going to do to these men? For indeed that notable miracle has been done through them, and it's evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. Isn't that crazy? They're going... Our goose is cooked. The dude is truly healed. He was standing with him. There's not a whole lot we can do about that, okay, guys? In other words, they're admitting that it's actually happened. When people meet you, they have to admit the obvious. You're not who you used to be. 
something has happened. And when you testify that that something is someone, and that someone is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom God raised from the dead, and you bear the same witness, then God receives the same type of glory from your life as this man who was healed. So make sure you give him credit for it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them. Ooh. We're going to tell you, don't talk about this to anyone. We're going to severely threaten. That from now on they speak to no one this man's name or speak to no man in this name. In other words, stop talking about Jesus. It's a very strange thing when you go and do events anywhere near Washington, D.C. Now, whether that's in either House of Congress, whether it's in the Rayburn Building where the uh, congressional officers meet, or whether it's over in the Senate chambers in the Capitol Building, no matter where it is, if you meet the president, any of those types of things, whenever you go there, if you're going to deliver a address or a prayer even, and you're going to do it in a public place, you have to first write out your prayer, and you submit it for it to be edited. And can I tell you, you can pray in every single name under heaven except the name of Jesus. It is actually not okay to do that. Because it's too narrow. The same thing is true now here in California for the California Highway Patrol. You can't pray in Jesus' name anymore. The same is true in our military. You can pray in the name of the Lord Most High. You can pray in the name of God. But you are not supposed to pray in Jesus' name. Why? Because His name is the name. It's the distinctive name. It's the only name. It's the one name. And people don't like that one name. Tell me about God. Because, see, then I can be really confused about who that is. And so for me, God is Allah. God is Buddha. God is the great consciousness. God is the tree spirits. God is Mother Earth. But when you nail it down, by this man, Jesus Christ, whom you crucified and God raised from the dead, by him, this man right here stands before you whole. That name gets opposed. And so they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in Jesus' name. Notice they didn't say in the name of God. In Jesus' name. Don't do anything in Jesus' name. If you want to really mess with people, pray in Jesus' name. Talk to them about Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. For we cannot speak the things which we have cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go. Why? Finding no way of punishing them. Because the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. In other words, when it becomes so real that people recognize it, there's not a lot anybody can say. You just tell them it was Jesus. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. You see, it's always Jesus that's the problem. Always Jesus. Make Jesus a problem in our world, family of God. And of course, I mean that in the very most correct sense. Make Jesus first. Make Jesus foremost. Make Jesus last. 
what we do, we are supposed to do all we've already seen in the name of Jesus. Amen? Words, deeds, thoughts, actions, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Because his name is the only name whereby men may be saved, by which they must be saved. And really what this passage shows us is it's really just the name of Jesus that the enemy fears. Can I tell you the enemy doesn't actually fear church? Because the church without Jesus, he doesn't need to fear. The enemy doesn't fear miracles being done. The enemy fears the name of Jesus because Jesus can change the destiny of man. Jesus can transform you from a son or a daughter of darkness into a son or a daughter of light. Jesus saves. Make it about the name of Jesus. You see, the council is, they were basically doing, they were doing the political correct thing. They were thinking, well, is it popular? Is it safe? You know, what should we do? And Peter says, let's do what's risky. We'll just tell them it's Jesus. It's risky to tell people about Jesus. Because they're probably going to mock you. They're probably going to concern themselves with the things that you might have to answer. Well, who is he? So you need to know your Bible. Three things that we can learn out of this objection. You, you see, when they began to question, the facts were irrefutable. There's nothing you can do with them. And there's nothing that people can do with your testimony either. You just tell it like it is. A second thing, their convictions. Didn't just touch the man, touched every area of their life. They were willing to die if necessary for the name of Jesus. They were willing to give up their freedom for the name of Jesus. They were willing to give up their ability to make money for the name of Jesus. They were willing to do anything rather than deny Jesus. In other words, Jesus was first. But they actually did it with tremendous respect. He's just getting everybody's face. He said, well, we're not going to do that. Sorry. And then finally, this third group, verse 23 down to verse 31. And being let go, <laughs> they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And so when they heard that, they started praising God. Can I tell you one of the greatest ways to bolster your faith is to be bold and watch God do exactly what he said he would do. And then when he moves in your life and you walk back and you talk to other believers, I had so many people come and had such kind words to say at the door today. It wasn't an easy message to deliver. Frankly, I didn't want to deliver it in that sense. It's kind of one of those things It's like, God, you've pushed me into a corner. This is you. I know it's you. I'm going to do what you've called me to do. But it wasn't until I got up and I'm like, you know, I just can't wait to go talk about this. Because people are not going to like it. There are going to be people who are not going to like this message, God. And he said, Jeff, but I've called you to be a watchman. But the result of that was people going, we got you. We're going to keep praying. Praise the Lord for that boldness. You see, look what happens here. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that sent them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said from Psalm 2, Why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? And the kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. In other words, God, you had this whole thing under control the entire time. All the Romans thought they were crafty. The Sanhedrin thought they had Jesus. 
that cohort of Roman soldiers that came with Judas, they thought, finally, we got him. And God's smiling from heaven, no, I got you. You think you've got my son, but he's got you. Because the very thing he came to do, you're going to actually help him do it. Doesn't make any sense to you because he came to die and you don't get that part. But you taking him to Golgotha, that's part of the plan. That purpose determined before to be done. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. It actually made them more bold. Boldness does that. When you're unashamed of the name of Jesus and you speak the name of Jesus and give him credit for what he's done in your life, you're going to find something that happens. You don't care who's listening. We're down in Columbia and there's all these security guards gathered around the presidential palace and they're setting up for this big concert thing that was going to be out in front of the presidential palace, which is just a few blocks from where we were staying and meeting. And we're out there and there's all kinds of armed, I mean, there are armed guards everywhere. And we're sharing with these college students and sharing Jesus with them. And, you know, a couple of guys came up and they were, you know, giving us the finger shake and all that kind of stuff. And we just kept talking about Jesus. And after a while, some of the armed guards are coming over with some of the college students. And they're listening to what these crazy, weird American dudes are doing. They're talking about Jesus. There's a level of boldness that comes when you just speak the truth. And you know whatever happens up to God to take care of it. And by stretching out your hand to heal, and that the signs and the wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. They called on his name, man. They, they turned it into a time of prayer and praise. They went straight to the throne room of God. They're like, Lord, you just delivered us. We thought we were going to jail. And you delivered us. To you belongs the glory. And as I said earlier today, those four things, notice they're in this passage. They leaned on the word of the Lord. They leaned on prayer. They leaned on the power of the Holy Spirit. And see here at the end, they leaned on a sovereign God. So when you bump into those people who don't believe the way you believe, you can rest and trust that God heard your prayers. God has the power to save. God's at work in those circumstances. And he has a plan to do exactly what he's planned to do. He intervenes in the affairs of man. I love the fact that they address God as, in, in great respect, a sovereign Lord. He's a sovereign Lord of heaven. Nothing gets by him. As they thought through these things, there's some final thoughts as they deliberated on these things. It wasn't whether it was popular or not. There were some things that happened to them. Their faith in the sovereign God was an encouragement. Their faith in a sovereign God was their belief that God could deliver them. Their faith in the sovereign God was their crying out to God to do what only God can do. You see, when we can just have good plans, then we can do it ourselves. But when God is necessitated in the situation by a, by a need that we cannot fill, we're asking God to do what we can't. And that's very different than asking him to bless what we can already do. Real faith asks a big God big things. Let's have that kind of faith. We're going to bring the worship team back up. God's able to shake the place there. He's able to shake the place here.
And when you come in contact with the Spirit of the living God, there's great power and there's great grace. Those two things are the mark of a great church. Where there's great power, there ought to be great grace. And the result of that is people having their lives changed and transformed. So I want to close in prayer and we're going to bring some of the pastors up forward. You know, maybe you haven't had that kind of boldness, but you want that kind of boldness. Maybe you haven't really ever testified of the things that God's done in your life. You've been afraid to share your faith. Don't rob yourself of the blessing of exercising that gift of evangelism. Telling people about Jesus. Because the world needs what we have. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for this example of these simple guys who were unashamed of the gospel message, who refused to give credit to anything except you, Jesus. May we be like that. Lord, would our lives speak your name. As we close and, and worship, Lord, would you fill this place with your presence? We need you, Lord, as we're going to be faced with trial and trouble and tribulation this week as we'll go through things to where our faith will be tested. We know that the testing of our faith produces patience, and patience, when it has that perfect work completed in us, it leaves us lacking nothing. That's why you, Jesus, asked for the disciples for more faith. Lord, give us more faith. We love you. We bless you for your word, for the encouragement, for the strength. Pray that you'd make us mighty for your name's sake and for your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.